If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, if you'd take them and open to Mark chapter 6, please. Mark chapter 6. We're continuing in this uh, series on the life of John the Baptist. And over the course of the first several weeks of the series, we've learned quite a bit about John's life. Of course, the goal isn't just to learn about the Bible or learn from the Bible, but the goal is to say, how can I continue to grow to become more like Jesus Christ? Not so that we'll be pleasing and acceptable to God, but as our proper response to what Christ has done on the cross. And so uh, we've looked at John's life for the first five weeks. Today we're going to look at at what we can learn from John's death. And then next week we'll wrap the series up by um, asking what can we learn about leaving a legacy uh, as we look at John the Baptist's life and how he left a legacy. For those of you who haven't been here for this series, uh, what I'd like to do is just a a quick review. These are kind of the things that we've learned each week about how to live life well based on John the Baptist's example. So number one, remember God knows your future. Remember, God knows your future. We started this series about 700 years before John the Baptist, the forerunner, ever showed up on the scene. It was a desperate time when God raised up a prophet named Isaiah to tell the people, God will be faithful. There will come someone who will deal with everything you're facing now. And so the challenge for us as we live our lives is to remember that God knows our future. He knows our present better than we do, but he certainly knows what comes next. We needn't fear. God has plans for us, designs for us, that if we knew them all right now, we would never stop smiling. That doesn't mean that rough times don't come. Some of us right now are in the middle of very difficult seasons that we're not sure. It seems like they may undo us. But if we'll remember that God knows the future, he has a plan, he's taking us somewhere, then we can remain faithful. We can continue to follow even when it seems difficult. Number two, know that God calls parents to help their children fulfill their purpose. We saw this with Zachariah and Elizabeth as we got into the Gospels and we're right on the cusp of the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner. We saw that Zachariah and Elizabeth were were faithful, righteous people devoted to the Word of God. And because of that, they were well-equipped to lead John in the path that he needed to go to help John fulfill the purpose for which God had created him. And this is a truth uh, For us, too, it wasn't just about Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. Each of us has been born with a purpose that God has for us. And for those of us who are parents, the greatest privilege we have is to help our children fulfill that purpose. And so if we're going to do that effectively, then we want to make sure that we are doing our best to live righteously and uh, to be devoted to God's word and to be faithful to the things that God has put in front of us. And that's, that, of course, isn't just for parents who have children at home, although that certainly is for us. Uh, but that's for those who have adult children that, uh, that you continue to be their parent. That's for grandparents. That's for spiritual parents. Those who say that uh, there's those who have come behind me that, that I'm helping to grow in their relationship with God. I'm parenting them. I'm helping them to understand their purpose 
and to live into that. The third way, the third thing we've learned from John about living well, number three, remember God can answer your prayers beyond what you could ask or imagine. So again, we see this in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was roughly 50 years old when after praying for 20 years that he would get a chance to serve in the temple. And after praying perhaps for longer than that, that he and Elizabeth would have a baby, the two things came together on one day. And he's called into the temple to perform his service. He doesn't just go in and perform his service, but an angel of God meets him at the altar and says, your wife's going to have a baby. Can you imagine that? The very thing they had been praying for for years, probably to the point where they thought, maybe it's time to take that off the prayer list and to put something else on. It's, it's just, it, it just can't happen now. We're, we're too old and we've prayed for too long, but God reminds us through them that he can and does answer prayers beyond what we could hope or imagine. And whether or not we hear or feel or see his answers now, God continues to answer prayers. And he can answer your prayers on the same scale that he answered Zechariah and Elizabeth's. That's not a prophecy that you're going to have a child, although you're past childbearing years. That's, that's saying that God can continue to blow our minds with the way that he answers our prayers. We must live and remember that and continue to pray faithfully, trusting God. Number four, know that your words have power to shape other people's lives. We saw this with Zechariah as he, uh, as he prayed over John the Baptist. His, his tongue had been loosed after nine months and, and he prayed this, this beautiful prayer talking about God's salvation and John's purpose. And we said that our words too like Zacharias, can shape a life. It can direct a life. The, the, the intentional words we say, the unintentional words we say, the, uh, the ways we encourage or the ways that we, that we discourage. The, even the times when we say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, or I forgive you. All of those can shape a life. All of our words matter. And then last week, we learn from John's life that we ought to live as a forerunner where God has planted us. I should live as a forerunner where God has planted me, and so should you. John was the forerunner, but we are also forerunners. God's put people in our lives and given us the responsibility to prepare the way for the work of the Lord, to prepare the way for what he'd like to do. And, and, and the, the part that just boggles my mind and that's absolutely incredible is uh, just as it was true for John the Baptist, it's true for us. We find that when we are serious and devoted about this work, we called it last week of, of a salvation farming, you know, when we, when we prepare the soil and plant the seed and do what we can to allow the seed to grow and keep birds and weeds and stuff away, just as we do that or as we're doing that, we discover we're only partnering with God and what he was already up to. He was already doing this. He's superseded this entire thing. But we have the privilege of being forerunners and, and, and going ahead of God, but we're not really ahead of God because he's already there and working towards the salvation of those that we love. 
So last week, we left off in the story of John the Baptist with him sending some disciples to follow Jesus. You may remember that in, in John chapter 1, um, John said, look, the Lamb of God, and then his disciples took off and followed him, and, and just like that, the, the narrative switches, and John disappears, and now we see what Jesus is doing with these, these followers that used to be John's, but, but now have become disciples of Jesus. Um, most people think that, that between that and John 1 and the passage that we're going to read today in Mark 6, which is also like in Matthew 14, um, that, 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 kind of, that kind of is the end of John's ministry. That's the synopsis. But we tend to miss out on this lengthy season, at least lengthy in, in my perspective, of ministry that John had. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put it on the screen. This isn't the main text for today, but I want us to get a feel for John's ministry beyond six months of, hey, Jesus is coming, and then he's dead. Okay, there was more to it than that. So uh, follow along as I read from John 3. Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So who was doing the baptizing? Yeah, Jesus, absolutely. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Spoiler alert. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I, religious people having arguments? Hardly believe it. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, who are they talking about? Who's that man? Good, you're following along. Uh, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for the bridegroom and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. As a matter of fact, let's read that last sentence together. If there ever was a goal to set for a new year, a new decade, decade this is it. Let's read verse 30 together. He must become greater. I must become less. So Jesus' crowds began to grow. Could have predicted that, right? When, when John sends his disciples to become disciples of Jesus. His crowds began to grow and John's crowds began to shrink. And John says, perfect. That's my mission. That's what I was sent to do. I was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so for about two years... These two rabbis, if you will, carried on separate ministries in parallel. Jesus was baptizing, and we saw last week, using John's sermon, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John was baptizing in a different place and preaching the same sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For about two years, this went on until John was arrested and thrown in prison. That leads us to today's passage. Hopefully you found Mark 6 by now. I'd like to invite you to follow along as I read from Mark 6, 
starting in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. Does that sound familiar, any of that? That's kind of what the religious leaders said to John Baptist in last week's passage. Do you remember that? We need to know, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that Moses promised? Who are you? Tell us so we know. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So now we get to hear the story of how John landed in prison and lost his head. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So let's break that part down for just a minute. Uh, Several years previous, Herod had gone to another part of the Roman Empire and visited his brother, Philip, who was ruling over that part of the Roman Empire. While he was there, he took a liking to Philip's wife, Herodias. And so Herod, being the constant schemer that he was, divorced his first wife and convinced Herodias to divorce her husband, Philip, who was Herod's brother, so that she could marry Herod. So Herodias is Herod's former sister-in-law, now wife, and the whole thing is just messed up. So when John heard of the immoral actions of his political leader, um, he didn't justify it by pointing out ways that the political leader was beneficial to John's people. That's not how Christians are called to respond to immorality. Instead, here's what John did. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Don't for a second buy the lie that we have to water down God's truth to get a hearing with people who are far from God. We don't. Herod is one evidence of that. Herod wanted to hear the truth. He was willing to listen to the truth when it was coming from a a source that he trusted. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in a dance, okay, so let's break that down. Okay, so we've got this daughter. Uh, Her name's not mentioned in scripture, but Josephus mentions her name as Siloam. Um, This is Herodias' daughter, probably from her marriage to Philip. So she's Herod's, what would that be, niece, now stepdaughter. 
and she comes in to dance at Herod's birthday party. Now, we don't necessarily see it in the NIV, um, but the, the Greek language that Luke uses here leads us to believe she was young, probably about the age of a freshman or sophomore in high school. And the nature of her dance was erotic. So when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. This is an actual religious oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went down and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Her mother responded, the head of John the Baptist. Remember, she was angry because John was telling her the truth. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he immediately set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And Matthew gives us just one more peek into how this part ended from Matthew 14. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat, privately, to a solitary place, presumably to grieve. So just as we've spent the first five weeks of this series learning from John's life, I believe today there's some lessons we can learn from John's death, uh, lessons that help us to have a sense of what it means to die well. How do we die well? Number one, don't compromise on biblical truth. Don't compromise on biblical truth. For those of you who are filling in your blanks, I'll give you a moment to do that. And then I'd like to ask if I could have all eyes on me for 30 seconds, please. Just all attention up here. I need you to know that when I stand up to preach, my goal every time is to preach God's word. Not to preach current events, not to preach politics, but to proclaim God's word the best way that I understand it and the best way that I'm able. Now, I know that from time to time I step on people's toes. My desire isn't to step on toes. My desire is that the Holy Spirit would walk wherever he wants to, even if that's across my toes. Sometimes I step on toes because I miss the mark of preaching God's word. And I, and I preach to the things that are happening around us. That's not my goal today. What I have to say in these next few minutes are not about what's happening anywhere, but in Scripture. What I'm about to say isn't a statement about any political party or leader. I'm not advocating for or against anyone in Washington, D.C., I'm simply telling you the story that the Holy Spirit has preserved for us in Scripture. And I'll trust that you, in consultation with the Holy Spirit, can apply 
the details of your life that may seem to overlap in today's situation in the way that he would guide you. Understand that John, Baptist, John the Baptist did not compromise biblical truth. He realized that the supreme leader over his region was an immoral adulterer. And he said, that's not right. That is not acceptable. You cannot live like that. Now, why did John the Baptist do that? What in the world did Herod, Herod Antipas, King Herod, they called him, although he wasn't a king, what in the world did he have to do with John's ministry of being the forerunner? John had come to introduce people to Jesus Christ to prepare the way for the Messiah to be revealed. That had nothing to do with the way that King Herod was living. Why would, why would John do that? Most historians don't really think that Jews of that day saw Herod Antipas as a Jew. He did have some Jewish blood in him by, by, you know, by genealogy, by lineage, but it's questionable and um, and yet, as King Herod ruled and made decisions and, and took action, oftentimes it was favorable to the Jewish people. He was continuing his father's quest to rebuild the temple. And, and there are other political moves that he made through history that, that at least lend credence to the notion that he was trying to rule favorably for Jews. Why would, why would John the Baptist, why, why would he mess that up? By speaking truth. Herod had great power. I mean, he wasn't the most powerful person in the land, but uh, over this region, he had considerable power. And, and, uh, and, and really, what Herod was doing was making little to no impact on what John was trying to do in the Judean wilderness. John could have gone about his ministry without ever saying to King Herod, you cannot have your brother's wife. It would have been easy for John to look the other way, to keep his mouth quiet, to let Herod do his thing while John did his thing, to, to assume that insignificant little preachers can't really make a difference when it comes to what big, powerful kings do. He even could have convinced himself that it was wise to not cast his pearls before swine, to not pick a fight that he couldn't win. But that's not what John did. You see, John was committed to proclaiming the word of God in all of its truth whenever, wherever that was needed by the Holy Spirit's direction, whatever the cost. John understood that the cost of not proclaiming the word of God is always greater, always greater than the cost of proclaiming the word of God to a, an audience who doesn't want to hear it and may even respond in violence. John knew that his mission was to proclaim God's word, to tell the truth, regardless of who needed to hear the truth. And what I'm afraid of is that if we're honest, most, most of us have a tendency to do the opposite of what John did. We find it far too easy to hold our tongues 
and to call it wisdom. We refuse to keep pointing people back to the way God says things should be handled because, well, that's just so-and-so. They've always been like that. We, uh, we cut people out of our lives. You know, we block their number on our cell phones. We block them on social media. We do everything we can so they can't get to us because, you know what? I already told them the truth. I've told them the truth multiple times. Clearly, they don't, they don't want to listen, so, so I'm done. As if winning is the goal, not faithfulness to proclaim God's word to people who need to hear it regardless of what they do with it. We're willing to turn a blind eye or a mute tongue to people's wrong behaviors as long as there's some more important to us benefit in remaining quiet. Or as Joe Bailey, who uh, for several decades edited the, 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 the magazine Christianity Today, as, as he wrote one time, the older I get, the less I'm willing to die for. And there comes a point in life where I believe by God's design, our fire dies down. We're just not willing to fight for things that we used to be willing to fight for. But as we consider what it means to die well, as we approach what could be our final days or our final decades, as we consider what costs and benefits matter most to us, as, as we decide on what matters more, that, that we be heard or that we faithfully speak the truth, or as we decide if we think so-and-so can ever really change anyway, I hope that we'll remember what John did. He told the leader of his region, the highest man with the most power where he lived, you cannot live immorally like this. You cannot have your brother's wife. It's against God's law. You don't get to act like you're one of us and behave like you're not. It doesn't work like that. Don't compromise biblical truth. Don't stop speaking biblical truth just because the person to whom God has called you to speak it isn't listening or doesn't appear to be listening. Don't make winning more important than faithfulness. Never, ever compromise on biblical truth. Continue to speak it. Continue to say it to those who need to hear it. Now, different temperaments and different personalities and different stages of life will deal with this differently. Some of us will have a tendency to slink back from proclaiming biblical truth. Others will struggle with doing it in a way that's effective. Or to say that another way, some of us, by our temperament and personality and stage of life, will have a, a struggle with uh, we'll have, you know, we'll have to struggle against becoming a wet noodle Christian. Someone who doesn't really stand up for what is right. Other of us will have to struggle against becoming cactus Christians. Who have no problem proclaiming the truth, but don't know how to do it in a way that doesn't send people away. Are you tracking with me? 
John the Baptist wasn't neither. Notice again what Mark writes. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's it. He didn't compromise biblical truth, right? Watch what happened again. Verse 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. That sounds kind of cactusy, right? Like he was presenting the truth, but she didn't want to listen. It was kind of a kind of a kind of a cactus Christian. Wisdom tells us in communication, it takes more than one person. One person can say all the right things in all the right ways at all the right times and still not be heard. The other person can still be unwilling to hear the truth. That's apparently what happened with John. Verse 20, the last half of verse 20, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. This is number two of how to die well. Speak the truth so well that people will like listening. Don't compromise on biblical truth, but speak it in such a way that people will want to hear more. I've been on social media more in the last two weeks with, a, you know, with, with, with more time during the holidays than I have been in quite a while. And it just appalls me, the things I read. I've read numerous articles on what happened in Mishawaka, this, this mother that slid off the road with her three children and two of them drowned. I've read numerous articles about this. And I cannot believe how asinine people are. I don't know if these people are believers or not, but our culture has gone toxic. We don't know how to say difficult things in a way that can be heard, but that's what believers are called to do. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says it like this, wounds from a friend can be trusted. There's no denial that sometimes our words will wound others. Sometimes they need to wound others. Because sometimes only in the hard conversations does change come. But we need to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't push people away, that isn't toxic and, and screaming and loud and rude and belligerent. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this number two because we just did a few weeks ago talking about words and how powerful they can be. But please understand as believers, we should not be the ones tossing God hand grenades into social media threads. We shouldn't be the ones standing out there screaming God's word or hitting people over, our, over you know, their heads with our incredibly large Bibles or you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Yes, we, we cannot... We cannot compromise God's truth. Yes, we continue to need to proclaim it. But in all times, in all ways, we need to allow our words to be seasoned with, with grace. We need to be full of grace and truth. We need to speak the truth in love. Number three, how to die well. Point people to Jesus creatively and relentlessly. Point people to Jesus creatively and relentlessly. Now, Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happens while John is in prison. It's kind of an afterthought to keep the story moving forward. We just read that in Mark 6. But um, apparently, John was in prison for a while, uh, not just like a day or two. He sat there for a while. 
And it's curious to me what John does while he's serving out this life sentence, if you will. Luke actually tells us a story in chapter 7. He writes, calling two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Scripture doesn't make it clear how we're to interpret or understand what happens here in Luke 7. I I think there's at least two ways to understand it. One is that as John sat in prison, the, uh, the deceiver, the liar, the enemy, or the adversary came and whispered in his ear, John, all that time wasted. If you were really the forerunner, if you were really doing what God wanted, you wouldn't be sitting here in prison. And so maybe John started to doubt. And he just needed some reassurance that he had done what God wanted him to do. That he had carried out his mission. It's not hard to understand this passage in that way. I mean, this is what real life is made of. Even the most lion-hearted Christian can be overcome by doubt. And I've shared with you before, I've sat with men and women who have served the Lord faithfully for decades as they know that their race is coming to end and it's not unusual for devoted brothers and sisters in Christ in a moment of intimate honesty with their pastor to say, Am I forgiven? Will I be ushered into heaven? Have I gone wrong? Doubt gets the best of all of us at times. Perhaps that's what's happening here. I tend to think, though, that there's a a different understanding here. Uh, Ray Vanderlaan leads tours throughout the Holy Land, and he tells of a story of one tour uh, where they were you know, walking through a village and looking in shops and, you know, souvenir buying and stuff like that. And, and one woman on the tour he was leading had gone into an artist's store and was admiring his paintings. And, and she was just in awe at how good this artist was. And he was in the store. And so she said to him, your paintings are so beautiful. Which one do you like the most? And the artist thought for a moment. And he said to the woman, tell me, do you have children? Of course, she was excited. Yes, she did. And she pulled out some pictures on her phone and you know, told them stories about each of her children. And, and when she was done, the artist looked at her and said, and which of your children do you love the best? And so in using a question, this artist helped her to answer her own question. That's pretty Middle Eastern. That's kind of par for the course. And that's par for the course with rabbis too. How many times in scripture does someone ask Jesus a question and Jesus answers the question with a question? Jesus, how do I get into heaven? Well, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Yeah, let me tell you a story and then you tell me who your neighbor is. Right? I mean, I think John's sitting in prison He knows that this is it. He's not getting out alive. But he still has some disciples who hadn't yet followed Jesus. And so he he calls for a favor. He knows that they won't be able to say no to him. And so he says, hey guys, come here. I need a favor. Would you go and make sure that I did the right thing, that I haven't wasted my life? Go ask Jesus if he is actually the Messiah. I think he's creatively and relentlessly pointing people to Jesus. 
when he could be sitting there preoccupied with the fact that he's on death row, he's saying, no, what can I do to get these followers of mine to follow the one who needs to be followed? How can I hand them off to Jesus? How can I help them understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that I'm not the one that they should be following, that he is? And so that's what he does. He finds a way to do that. He leverages where he's at, the relationship he has, the influence he has to help these men follow Jesus. I wonder, is that something we do? Are we leveraging what God has given us for God's glory so that others will follow Jesus? God has given you influence. He's given you responsibility. How are you leveraging that to point people to Jesus? He's given you resources, a vehicle, a home, material possessions, money. How are you leveraging those regardless of the amount or the size so that God can be glorified and people can encounter Christ through them? He's given you a reputation. He's given you experience. He's given you learning. How are you leveraging all those things to creatively and relentlessly point people to Jesus? We all have room for growth. But if you're a follower of Christ, you are who God needs you to be and you have what God needs you to have to reach the people God wants you to reach. Are you doing that? So here's what happened. John said, I need you to go ask Jesus if he was the Messiah. This is the rest of the story. Let's jump down to verse 21. At that very time, after they said, are you the one? At that very time, Jesus cured who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. So John says to his disciples, I want you to go ask if Jesus is the Messiah. I believe John is saying I want you to go become followers of Jesus Christ. Go find out for yourself that he is who he says. He's entrusting his disciples to Jesus. And when they ask Jesus, Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Look, I'll show you. Poof, people are healed, raised from the dead, cured of leprosy. And then he tells them. He says, look, that's what the Messiah will do. That's what I'm doing. Yes, I am him. Like John the Baptist, Paul spent his final days in prison. And as he was nearing his execution day, Paul writes this to Timothy. I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I'm confident that he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him. Now, John didn't write this verse, but he modeled it. He was confident that if he entrusted his disciples to Jesus, Jesus would take it from there. That's number four, entrust to Jesus that which matters most to you. What does that look like for us to do? What does it look like for you to do, to entrust to Jesus that which matters most to you? What would it look like for you to entrust your children or your grandchildren into God's care, their salvation, their walk with him, their spiritual maturity? How do you entrust your spouse and their spiritual, relational, financial, physical well-being after you're gone. How do you entrust that to God? 
What does it mean to entrust to Jesus your financial resources so that he can do with them what he wants to do as you, end, as you near the end of your race? What, is it, what does it look like to entrust to God the responsibilities and the influence that he's given you as your life enters its final quarter? I mean, God has entrusted to us all a lot of things, regardless of our age. This isn't just for the 80-year-olds in the room, teenagers. God has entrusted to all of us significant things. The question is, what am I doing so that if my life ends, it's not, hmm, hope God can do something with it. But it's, I entrust this back to you. Do what you see best. My heart has been broken this week. A week ago, as a church in Texas was receiving communion, a gunman walked in and shot people. The middle of the week, this mother just driving down the road goes off the road and into a pond and two of her kids like that are snatched from her. And, and I don't know, I haven't heard, maybe even she and her youngest baby may not survive. I just heard yesterday from Naomi Kaufman that, that her mom finished her race. Praise God, she was a believer and she had run a long race. Friends, we all know that life comes to an end. We all know that our, my life will come to an end. Your life will come to an end. We just don't know when. So the question is, am I living now in such a way that when that time comes, whether I know it's coming and have time to prepare or whether it's upon me and I, I didn't have time to prepare, am I living in a way now that I can die well? If you learn this month or this week that you have six months to live, have you been living in such a way that that will carry on into your last six months and you'll be able to die well? If you don't live through the week, if you die suddenly, will people look at what were the last days and weeks and months of your life and say, she died well, he died well. If you don't make it through today, Will your last moments have counted? Are you compromising? Or are you remaining faithful to God's word? Are you living in such a way that people can see in your life and hear through your words the truth of Jesus Christ? Is your life focused on no matter what it takes, helping other people to take their next steps with Jesus Christ to belong to him and to become like him? Have you entrusted to Jesus everything that matters most to you, even your soul? Amen.